you are, Your Honor. You've reserved three minutes for rebuttal, so that gives you seven minutes out of the gate. You may proceed. Thank you. My name is Martin Vogelbaum. I'm from the Federal Public Defender's Office in the Western District of New York, and I represent the appellant, Mr. James Tracy. As the Court knows, we've raised only a single issue on this appeal. Counsel, could you pull up the microphone, please? Of course. As the Court knows, we've raised only a single issue on this appeal. Now you're in stereo. We've raised only a single issue on this appeal, which is that the Court imposed a suspicionless search condition, a supervised release, containing no requirement that a search be undertaken on reasonable suspicion, containing no requirement that a search be reasonably related to the supervisory duties of the probation office, and containing no requirement or prohibition, I should say, on arbitrary, capricious, or harassing searches. So, I mean, that issue has been briefed before in another case. I don't know if it's your office or not that's bringing that one. So I guess we'll see what is said about that one. But, I mean, isn't this a case, though, where one could infer from the record, from the nature of the charges, from the fact that he had prior convictions involving child enticement or child pornography, child enticement, really, I think, that this is someone who certainly needs this kind of a search requirement because he instructed people to destroy evidence before. He was using surreptitious Facebook communications. There was a lot of deceit associated with this crime. What I would say to that, Your Honor, is that I don't, I didn't raise an individualized sort of finding argument or an individualized assessment argument in this case for precisely that reason. I agree with the Court that if that's the kind of argument I was making, that the record here would bear out exactly what the Court said. But the argument here is quite a different one, which is simply the categorical argument that there cannot be, under either the totality of the circumstances law enforcement rubric or under the special needs analysis. But can I interrupt you? I mean, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So are you saying that if the judge had said what I just said, then the judge could have imposed this search requirement? No. I apologize to be confusing. Our position is that there are no circumstances under which a judge can impose a search requirement that doesn't have some kind of substantial triggering evidentiary predicate to it. I mean, that's inconsistent with existing Second Circuit case law, right? I mean, we've, in the case of New York State parole officers, we've already said that generalized search requirements are okay, right? Well, I think in some cases the Court has read that more strongly than in others. For example, I'm thinking of Bragg's most recently, or Lipschitz, I think, is the other major case where the Court takes a very strong position that rationally and reasonably related to the performance of supervisory duties is something quite different than reasonable suspicion in the mandatory sense. But I think that the vast majority of the Court's precedents, in fact, the Court does find some kind of evidentiary predicate, whether it's reasonable suspicion or it's assumed reasonable suspicion. And I think there's a good reason for that. Even 
intrusive and, and maximally effective. And additionally, would the requirement of a rational and reasonable relationship to duties of the probation officer under the circumstances. It seems to me that all of those things imply some kind of informational trigger uh, for the search of issues. Otherwise, <coughs> But isn't that, in fact, the law of the circuit? <clears throat> Long ago, a whole generation ago, we upheld validity of home visits by probation officers for those on supervised release without requiring reasonable suspicion. For no reason at all. They just pop in because it's a surprise uh, visit and... Uh, that was 2002 in our court, and I think the Supreme Court followed up with a similar decision involving a, a California <clears throat> search. So, I mean, we, we've dealt with this long ago. Well, I think the case of your honor is referring to the Reyes, and of course I don't disagree with respect to the home visits, but of course Reyes also points out that home visits are far less intrusive phenomena than an actual probation search is what we're talking about here. And even in Reyes, the ultimate search that is done uh, is conducted only after uh, the probation officers in that case take a little trip down the side driveway and see marijuana plants. Samson, the Supreme Court decision was a was a suspicionless search, wasn't it? It was. Um, however, what I would say in relation to and in relation to the last point, is that I don't think it's fair to say or accurate to say that even in the absence of um, a reasonable suspicion requirement, the special needs analysis has um, dispensed with any sort of um, informational predicate that would have the discretion of the probation officer. And I don't think that Samson permits that result. It is important in Samson, and in fact the dissenting uh, to Justice Thomas uh, writes a paragraph refuting or rebutting the defense in, in, in the dissent in Samson by saying that your concerns about suspicion of search leading to arbitrary, that is to say, baseless or capricious or purely harassing searches is misplaced because alongside the very law that authorizes these suspicionless searches is another law that prohibits exactly that kind of conduct. So I don't think so I don't think this court's jurisprudence. Can I can I ask you how plain error overlays here? So I think it's Oliveris that's the case ahead of you on this issue. If Oliveris comes out exactly as you hope it does, we still have to ask whether it was plain error here in the context of Samson and Reyes and Lifshitz and every other circuit to consider the issue and the um, and the guidelines, uh, all of these things. So, w- what's the argument then that that it's not that it is plain error? Well, that is, I will acknowledge, a difficult argument for me. I'll step to the back of your question. I don't think I understand that the government devoted a lot of discussion to it. I'm not so sure that the guidelines are the most important thing in terms of the 
So, okay, every other circuit, Supreme Court precedent, Second Circuit precedent. Well, I think there, I believe there are three other circuits, if I'm not mistaken, that have authorized official searches, and then I think there are also three other searches that have hewed to a reasonable suspicion standard. Well, but they haven't really addressed this specifically, though, right? I think perhaps a more appropriate way to say it is they've never addressed it. They've never addressed the case dealing with official search, and so haven't endorsed it one way or another. I think we would now have a reasonable suspicion. But again, even with the Supreme Court case, even with Hansen, you know, I would point out, first of all, that's a cruel, maybe an even-bigger argument, and I'm brief, I won't belabor it here, that supervised release is much more similar to probation. Yeah, I mean, Lifshitz presents a problem for that because it talks about a spectrum, and it puts supervised release at the most severe end. Unless, of course, that's dictum, which arguably it is, because I'm not clear that Lifshitz comes to any different results, notwithstanding Hansen. And I would also point out about Hansen, in addition to the prohibition on arbitrary suppressions and harassment searches, I think the regulation in that case is properly read only to apply to the person of the parolee. I think that's how it reads. And so I think that a lot of the issue in this case, as well as on the merits, is conceivably you could have different gradations of privacy, even in the context of supervised release, that attach to different places. Typically, the home, of course, is the unit of privacy applications. And I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case in the context of supervised release or parole or probation, as it is for any other citizen, albeit the professional. All right. Well, you've reserved some time for rebuttal. We'll now hear from Ms. Lee. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, my name is Tiffany Lee, and I represent the United States. I think this case rises and falls on the narrow review. And as your questions of my opponent kind of suggest, it cannot be said that it is plain error for the district court to have imposed this special condition of supervised release. Certainly, the landscape, the legal landscape that we are currently under, pending a decision on the merits, certainly the cases that this court has issued in Reyes and in Braggs, and more importantly, with Sampson v. California, we have a legal landscape which suggests that when we're dealing with individuals who have a diminished level of privacy interests at stake, certainly this court has said in dicta and also following Lipschitz in cases such as Reyes and Vermont that in the continuum of privacy interests, a person on supervised release has the least amount of expectation of privacy. And that is because, as Sampson also recognized, a person on supervised release, that punishment is in addition to the period of incarceration. As distinguished from a probationer who has not spent a single day in incarceration, it's almost like his incarceration has been deferred 
successful, his or her successful completion of probation. It's more akin to someone who's on parole who has been released early uh, from their period of incarceration. Counsel, can I ask, is the government's view that we should wait for Oliveras because how that's decided will impact at least how we consider the plain error question? Um, I don't think it's necessary to wait for Oliveras uh, because of the fact that the question here right now is, is it uh, <coughs> an error that is plain? Is it clear? Is it obvious or anything along those lines? And certainly in Oliveras, there was more of an argument vis-a-vis uh, the discretion that the district court exercised in that particular case. Oliveras also involved the drug defendant, and that issue was preserved. Here, we are dealing with an individual who is convicted of a sex offense, where under the guidelines, they do recommend a special condition that involves, indicates a suspicionless search to the extent that uh, a search is uh, is a, a warrantless search is allowed so long as the probation officer is executing the search in his or her lawful discharge of his duties. So given that we have the guidelines framework suggesting that this type of special, special condition is permissible in cases such as Tracy, whereas in all affairs in all the um, I feel that the plain error issue Well, Oliveras was argued almost six months ago, so it presumably won't be too long a wait. And that, that is certainly... He's an optimist. Um, the the contention of uh, that in this context we apply a relaxed uh, plain error rule. You're, you don't view it as uh, that sort of context. I don't view it in that sort of context only because this was. Um, I understand it's sentencing, but here sentencing and the the, the, the um, inclusion of this changed over time and. Well, he's a registered sex offender as well. I mean, what are the, is it the record 
does the record reflect what sort of search requirements, if any, there are associated with that? There's, in essence, the search condition that was imposed was that he shall submit to a search of his person, property, vehicle, place of residence, or any other property under his control and permit the confiscation of any evidence or contents. That's the condition imposed by the district court. Right. I'm asking a slightly different question. I mean, there's also state obligations that he's under. But is there a search requirement associated with the state's sexual register? Unfortunately, I'm not aware of New York's sex registration rules, so I do not know. Unless there are any other questions, the government rests on its feet. All right. Thank you, Ms. Lee. Mr. Vogelbaum, you've got three minutes for rebuttal. I just wanted to make a brief point, if I could, and I'll start from the back first. With respect to whether we should wait for all the merits of the plea, our position is that that would be the thing to do, in part because, bearing on the plain error question, I'm probably going to misremember the name of the case, but my recollection is that there's a case called Hutchins that says error is plain if it's plain at the time of appeal. So if this court ultimately decides on the merits in our favor, conceivably that might impact the court's view of the plain error issue in this case. Secondly, with respect to nobody making an objection here, I do think that this is a case where it would be appropriate to apply the last plain error review. There were six versions of the PSR in this case. The first four of them all had in the proposed special condition that the search condition was activated upon reasonable suspicion. Those three words. It was only in the last two that those three words were omitted, and the only notice that was given to the parties was a generalized statement, excuse me, in the addendum to the PSR that the proposed changes of special conditions had been changed in some fashion without pointing out which condition or what the change was or anything of that nature. And you're talking about about a page and a half worth of dense special conditions. I mean, it is then read verbatim at sentencing. So you have it. You've noticed of a change, some change. You have it in the final version, and then it's read without reasonable suspicion at sentencing. That's true, and I understand the court's point. But on the other hand, again, we are still talking about only three words upon reasonable suspicion, which are really easy to miss, even if you're listening at sentencing. Maybe you're not really expecting it. And I think there's also the more general principle here that, you know, the Monokai case out of this court says that notice should be sufficient and adequate, and I don't know why necessarily, you know, certainly defense counsel and the government both have responsibilities to read the thing, but I don't know why there isn't some onus on probation to provide more adequate notice than there was given in this case. Were you counsel in the district court? I was not. And finally, just with respect to a few notes on supervised release being more similar to parole, I'd really be really strongly disinclined. That is not the case. This business of supervised release being imposed in addition to the incarcerative sentence is not the case. It's a condition of supervised release. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Vogelbaum. Thank you, Ms. Lee. We'll reserve the decision.
Am I wrong? Isn't that what Lifshitz? You're saying it's dicta in Lifshitz. So you're making your argument even though Lifshitz contains that dicta and arguing it's dicta. That's right. That is essentially wrong. And, of course, looking back at the legislative history, this was enacted in response to the truth in sentencing law with the Comprehensive Reform Act, the fact that many incarcerated sentences count longer. And Congress saw a need for not an additional punitive device at the end of these longer sentences, but saw the need for a device that would be rehabilitative in nature and that would need reentry in society, which is precisely why, until the end of the Drug Abuse Act of several years later, supervised release violations were very rarely punished, and when they were, they had to be prosecuted as contempt of court rather than the sort of quasi-almost administrative process that we have. Thank you. All right. Thank you both. Well argued. We'll reserve decision.